Hi, I'm JT White, author, digital native, and product person, obsessed with trying to find out how to make digital products and the people that make them the best we possibly can. This is Build for Better. My guest today is Julian Placino. Julian is a recruiting consultant who helps organizations create a culture of recruitment where people thrive. As a recruiting practitioner for over 15 years, he's led talent acquisition at world-class companies and has hired and coached thousands of top performers throughout his career. For seven years, Julian led recruitment at Bottle Rocket, which is where I met him, one of the world's top mobile development firms. Through speaking and consulting, he teaches recruitment strategy, personal branding, and leadership development. As host of Pathways to Success on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify, he interviews inspiring leaders about their business and keys to personal success. He played a big part on my journey to where I am, and I am so excited to introduce you to him today. This is Julian. All right, Julian, I want to get directly into why I'm so excited that you're here before I let you say anything. which is very on brand for my podcast. So I'm so excited you're here for a couple reasons. The first is because I feel like recruiting and recruiters and building recruitment is a thing that's wildly misunderstood and very often done very poorly. Uh, I'm also very excited you're here because I have had the pleasure of working with a lot of people in the recruiting profession. Some have been great and some have been fine and some have really hurt my feelings and all sorts of other stuff. But I have never, ever, 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 ever worked with someone that was as upfront and easy to communicate with and honest and like gracious as you were throughout the process. And so I want to level set that because having that context for everybody, I think, is important so that they understand like I cannot talk highly enough about how good I felt when we when you were trying to like get me involved at Bottle Rocket, which you ultimately did and was awesome and like a highlight of my career. So with that said... We're going to talk about belief today, and I want to I want to level set with what does belief mean to you in your career first, and then we'll go further. Yeah, sure. So first off, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure working with you at Bottle Rocket, and I'm delighted to be back on your show, and thank you so much for all those very nice things you just said about me, JT. Um, but as far as belief goes, what is really interesting is that is a central theme of my professional and now entrepreneurial career. I believe that it is very important that you must believe and love the work that it is that you do. And by doing so, it sort of unlocks the best version of yourself and creates an energy that allows you to do really great work. So yes, belief in who you are and what you're doing is central to my philosophy. All right. So there's a few words I want to key on. So energy, we'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But when it comes to belief, so specifically when you're talking about your profession, right? So the belief in what you're doing. So in your role and in the role that you train so many people in now, it's not just a belief in what you're doing, but like you need to show and get the belief from them in the company and the mission and everything that you're doing. So what's that process like? Like How do you, because it's not an easy thing to do to just get somebody on like, it's sales. Recruiting is sales. It's hard sales, (laughs) right? So like, what's the process that you go into define to like actually being able to translate that belief to people? So, so you're absolutely right. Recruiting is sales. The role of a corporate recruiter is to get a candidate excited about the prospect of working at your organization, right? So in the world of sales, they say the first person you must sell is yourself. Now, why do you do that? 
because it allows you to increase your belief and therefore the energy that you put out there within the marketplace about the company that you're representing. So when it came to Bottle Rocket, I was very selective about the kinds of companies that I wanted to lead recruiting for. And throughout that process, I learned about Bottle Rocket and I believed in them. And I believed in the work that we were doing. It was truly world-class. It was evidenced by the book of business that we had. And therefore that excitement would translate authentically when I began to pursue other candidates and share my excitement for the company. So for me, it starts there. It begins in the selection process. Like, is this a company you actually want to work for? Because I know what it's like to try to sell a company that you don't believe in. And it's just not the same. I love that you said selection process. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've learned in my old age now (laughs) is that job interviews go both ways, right? And and it's really important that when you're somewhere on the other side of the table from the recruiter or from the hiring management team, that you're also interviewing them. So Mm -hmm. when, when, when you think about the selection process, how do you approach selecting candidates and how do you suggest people approach selecting candidates so that you're doing some of the homework in advance? Or do you think it's better to like not do any of the homework and actually see what happens naturally? So I, I have a very methodical way of how I screen candidates that seems to have served me well. And I've taught this to hundreds of recruiters now when it works. So there's an acronym MSLOMAC that stands for Motivation, Skills, Location, Opportunity, Money, Availability, and Culture. And I apply this method of screening to every conversation. You and I had this, you probably didn't know that's what I was doing, but those were all of the checkpoints, right? So if all of those variables are in alignment, that means you have a high priority match and that's how I decide for all candidates. So that being said, what do I look for? I look for individuals who have truly have gone above and beyond. I think results are a good indicator of future results. So I'm always scrutinizing what has someone done And how are those results relevant to the needs of the business? So that's how I start. Okay. And when you're having those conversations with people, results, I think, you know, I mean, I mean, you've seen more resumes than I, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how many resumes you've screened in your life, but results are some, sometimes I think people really struggle with how to quantify results and set that up for success so that people see it and understand what they actually accomplished. So when you say results, like what are you looking for in particular? Like what's the most meaningful stuff to you on your side of the table? So the complete outcome of one's skill set. So for example, at Bottle Rocket, we hired uh, interns, right? And the entry-level group of entry-level group of software engineers is the most brutal and competitive link out there. We would get literally hundreds of applications for interns who want to come work at Bottle Rocket, right? But the ones we always hired was not just the person who had the degree or said they could code, but it was the person who already had apps in the app store. That is the end product of what it was that they could create. So we could scrutinize that. We could look at it. So that is an evidence of of the results they created. Same thing with designers. Designers, you could see pretty quickly in their portfolio, does this person have the aesthetic that we look for here at Bottle Rocket? Same thing with sales, right? What is your previous track record? What was your revenue last year? What... How do you generate a lead? What were your sales calls? What were your numbers? Those are all things that you can scrutinize to help predict whether or not a candidate is going to be a fit for your organization. Got it. And when you think about like the the North Star for, Mm -hmm. so like you just mentioned three wildly different roles that you have to hire for, right? And like one of the things that's never been lost on me on uh, for recruiters in particular is that like you are talking to a wide array of people, right? Like engineers and salespeople and finance executives, like you're screening all of them. They're wildly different skill sets. They're all very different people just because humans are different. 
the North Star that you orient, like how important do you think it is that recruiters or corporate recruiters are in the conversation around mission and values? I think it's very important. I, I think it's also it's also important to see the delta between what a company says they value and what they actually value through the culture and the stories that are told about your culture, right? Um, and, and that was one of the things that I could experience deeply at Bottle Rocket. And what was cool is because I started at the beginning, I was like employee number 30, and I was able to actually be part of the story and witness the growth and experience a lot of those really cool things firsthand that I could speak to. Like very often when I was trying to quote unquote sell a candidate, all I had to do was look around and talk about the stories that I saw from people joining the organization and how their lives were transformed. So for me, I knew for a fact that if I recruited somebody to Bottle Rocket, they would do some of the best work of their life at this company. Well, it clearly worked on me because I moved across the country. So, <laughs> so whatever you were doing was working. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> so let me let me ask you another question about that though. So when it comes to the sort of the dynamic between an executive leadership team and their recruiting, whether it's internal or external. Mm -hmm. um, recruiters, especially if they're internal, you're culture makers for, for lack of a better term, right? I mean, we were all, we were all kind of makers. We had a very maker mentality at Bottle Rocket. And it's one that I've carried on with me everywhere that I've gone. And what recruiting really is making is you're making culture because the people you bring in will immediately and have a definitive impact on that culture. So what's that communication look like from you to an executive? when you're seeing culture shift and you're seeing things both good and bad, like how do you broach those conversations? Because you're in a really unique position to influence what happens at an organization, specifically if it scales, specifically if it scales quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think I very much agree with you. There's no such thing as a neutral hire. Every human being that comes into your organization is either going to push your culture forward or, or push it back, right? So I think at Bottle Rocket, especially because we were small in the beginning, it was quick to spot the individuals who were setting the culture back. And as you know, we had the lift committee, which was the soul of the culture of Bottle Rocket, right? So that was really cool in terms of communicating what that culture was, bringing it to life. Um, but I think especially at the beginning, it was very, it was very clear and visible as far as uh, who was really supportive of the culture and who wasn't. Now, as we continue to grow and expand, we were able to put some systems into place um, and I, specifically Amy Chaklewski, who I, I, I know you know, um, she did a really good job of scaling organizations because we were relatively flat. But the thing I loved about Amy is that she came from BlackBerry and she had a proven track record of leading fiercely loyal teams. Um, so as we continue to grow, I had to lean very much on the disciplined heads as far as who are the persons we need to kind of keep an eye on, who are the things that we need to um, sort of like create some targeted messaging to. Um, and speak directly to leadership based on what it is that we were seeing overall in the company. All right. So that now I want to go there, man, there's, there's so many things. Every time you talk, I'm like, Ooh, I want to talk about that. Okay. So let's talk about the marketing aspect for a minute, because you talked about messaging internally yeah. and the, there's a sort of the, the old hat is like, put a bounty on bringing people in, give them money. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough, right? Like that, that works to an extent, but it doesn't mean people get good people. It just means they get people. What you actually want is you want people who are agents who are out like really looking for the right people because they're as excited to get people to work with them as they are to work there. So 
it's just what I guess what I'm trying to say is like recruitment when it's done well is so much more than just hiring, right? Like there's, there's a lot of other pieces that are going into it. So when you think about messaging internally, how do you create that? Like, what are you thinking about? Are you talking to your marketing team? Cause I remember like you guys would send stuff that was really polished. Like we would get really nice pieces of material that I was like, Oh, time and energy and thought went into this, which made me that much more willing to pay attention to it. So do you believe that that's like a big thing that needs to be happening or do you think bounties are good? I know it's kind of a, a softball, but. Yeah, no, I, I think the reason why we succeeded at Bottle Rocket was because we had created a culture of recruitment. And the truth is, JT, I didn't even know what this thing was or even what to call it until I left Bottle Rocket and started to teach it. The reason why we won was because we operationalized our existing staff to go out and find new staff. And as you recall, we had a very lean recruiting organization. It was myself and one other at the biggest that it was. Right. But the majority of the actual sourcing were from our individual rocketeers. And one out of every two hires that we made towards the end of my tenure there, they came from the culture. And that's significant because it was no longer me sourcing the candidates. It was the culture. We didn't have one recruiter. We had 250. And the reason why we were able to do that is because Recruiting came to the forefront because I made it part of the forefront. So I sort of anointed Calvin, who's the CEO at the time, right, as the chief recruiting officer. So this is a philosophy that must be adopted from the top down. To make recruiting a North Star objective, you must treat it like a North Star objective. And one of the ways that we did that tactically is the every company meeting, every Tuesday that we had it, recruiting would have a spot. So I inserted myself there and I talked about recruiting. I talked about our open jobs. I introduced all of the new hires. I told the stories of how Rocketeers were recruiting others. So it became part of the fiber. It just became part of the recruiting culture. It was an expectation that I set for everyone coming into the organization. You remember flight school or orientation, right? That was my time to anoint all new Rocketeers that you are now part of the recruiting culture. It is part of your rocketeer duty to tell your friends about this organization and let us know about the great people that you know in your network. Man, it worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it worked. It worked for employees too. Like I remember being really, you know, because I think, I mean, startups, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, but like startups get a bad rap. I think a lot of people use the word startup in like this very like, you know, HBO <laughs> kind of way where it's like, oh, it's a garage and a bunch of people drinking coffee or beer. But also like the, how serious it was taken from the get. Like when you go into orientation and the people that brought you in are still there and were talking to me about more people and what my role in their role was now. I don't know. It felt very inclusive and it felt different. It's definitely something that has it stuck with me. And I, I recognize it now when it's not happening, when it feels like a sort of a, you know, a grenade over a wall where it's like, hey, we found somebody and they're here now. Good luck. Like that yeah. feels like a very different way to bring people in. And again, culture making, like it's harder to make culture that way when there's not a through line. Yeah. yeah 100%. So, okay. I want to go back to energy. So energy is really, it's one of my favorite words because it's polarizing, right? There's good energy and there's bad energy. And there's like a sense of energy that you get, like every once in a while, you'll be around someone or with some people or doing something. And there's like a palpable energy in the room. And one of, you're an amazing public speaker. And one of the things that I'm interested in talking to you about is like that energy that you have. So you already mentioned like it's important to do what you love. And so clearly that's part of the reason that you're as good on stage as you are, because you actually do love this stuff, right? You believe in the stuff that you're doing, but creating that energy Sometimes when you don't have it, right? Like, especially the amount of speaking that you do, 
Like there are days and maybe you don't experience this, but as someone who used to be on stage a fair amount, there's days where I'm just, it's hard. Like you got to create the energy, right? Like what's your, what's your process for that? Because I've seen you and you're really good and you're prolific in posting a lot of the stuff, which I think is kind of you because you're giving away free advice like you are today. But you're never like I've never watched a video clip of you where I'm like, oh man, he's not having a great day. You always look like you're having a good time. What is that, man? Mm. <laughs> like, how's that possible? So I think speaking is this intersection of of where I have some natural ability and also where I really have an area of interest in what creates value for others. So I think there is something about that intersection. And as far as the energy that happens whenever I speak specifically, you, you may not believe me when I say this, but I get nervous every single time. You know, in Toastmasters, they say, the butterflies will probably never disappear, but you'll teach them how to fly in formation. And I think that's kind of where I am right now. I get a natural kind of energy before I am about to speak. And to be honest, that keeps me sharp. It keeps me prepared and it keeps me fully engaged and present as I'm delivering that talk. So I guess I have a little bit of a, of a natural advantage in saying I get nervous before I speak, you know, and that energy translates into excitement and enthusiasm once I get going. So do you think you can train people to get there? Like now that you like mentioning that you kind of have a little bit of the spark in you already. Like, do you think you can get people to get that kind of energy and be able to do that? Or do you think you need to be hiring for people that already kind of have an inclination for it? I like to hire people that have an inclination for it. That's also the difference between hiring someone who actually really enjoys what they do versus somebody who was forced. I want to hire someone who's already running in the direction of, of, uh, of our culture. You know what I mean? So that is something that I look for. Like for you example, you, you were hired for, for sales for off, right? Yep. So I interviewed tons of salespeople. But I remember you had a very specific kind of energy, like you stood out, you had the X factor. Not only did you meet my M Slomac, but you were someone I was excited to go show the team, right? Because I knew you would represent me well because of what I learned about you. And, and it was not anything forced, it was something that just exuded. I think energy, energy flows from the person who is enjoying what they love to do. Mm. All right, flow. I'm just going to keep picking words and going with it because it seems to be working. <laughs> All right, so when you think about the flow of a conversation, right? I mean, one of the things, and I, I don't want to take digs at recruit, recruiters at all because like I said, I've, I've met tons and tons of amazing ones. But the conversational skills are really important, right? And like being able to create flow with people so that there is a sense of comfort and normalcy because it's, it's intimidating. I mean, listen, I've been doing this for a long time. Still to this day, if I like reporters and recruiters, man, everybody with the R, I always get a little, a little nervous. Sure. How, like, how do you, how do you teach recruiters to, I don't know, kindness? Like there was a certain kindness that you had that felt very approachable and it didn't feel like there was an imbalance of power. And, mm -hmm. and that to me is a really important piece in finding out who people truly are. Because inherently, at least in my opinion, I'd be interested in your opinion on this too, but like when you feel like there's a power dynamic problem when you walk in the room, it immediately is really off-putting and it can make people react poorly. So like, how do you reckon, like, is that, first of all, do you think that's true? Do you think power dynamics matter in that sense? And, and two, how, how do you kind of like structure that so that when you're finding recruiters or, or even just like salespeople in general, when you're looking for people, like what's the, what's the it factor that you feel where you're like, oh, this person understands how to human. 
<laughs> yes. So I think there's a way to objectively determine that and also subjectively determine that, right? So especially when it comes to Salesforce, the first thing I do look is at, is at the track record. Does it meet my criteria? Is the revenue on point? Do their skills match and all that kind of stuff, right? But a lot of that also happens in the behavioral side of the conversation, asking high quality behavioral based and getting a sense of who this person is. Also, here's another thing I learned from Monty, right? You remember Monty, right? Sure. Monty was notorious for having very long interviews, like two or three interviews. And I learned why he did that. It's because people will generally kind of let their guard down after a longer period of time. You're kind of wearing them down, right? It's like they show more of who they actually are yeah. after a certain amount of time. Um, because the fact of the matter is an interview is very kind of fake. Everyone's trying to put on their best self. So what are the things that you can do to try to suss out who that human being actually is? And uh, based on those conversations, you can kind of get a sense of, does this person have empathy? Are they going to represent the brand well? Can they, in your words, human well? Yeah. Yeah, the, lo the long thing I think is very interesting. It's always a... It's almost a struggle for, for some people. I have some friends who've been in the market recently and like the volume of interviews feels to have gone up considerably um, specifically. And maybe that's just because I'm at a point in my career where the hires matter a little bit more because I'm old. Um, but I do think that like, I'm interested in your opinion. Like, do you think you need, I don't know, six and seven interviews? Or do you, when you hear that someone has a practice where they're routinely doing six or seven interviews with the same people over and over, Different when you're meeting different folks. That's obviously different. But if you're doing four or five turns, like when I hear that with knowing nothing about your profession, by the way, like I would be a terrible recruiter across the board. Yeah. But that being said, I do hear that. And I think you must not be asking the right questions the first two or three interviews then. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I've seen some very elongated interview processes. And quite frankly, a lot of times it has a very poor ex user experience for the candidate, right? I think if your process is dialed in well, you can do it in three steps, right? So an initial conversation with the recruiter for the screening and then submitting probably two other conversations. Like if you remember, we did a, uh, a direct hiring conversation with the immediate manager and then also mostly multidisciplinary team, like the different folks who would work with this individual. And then together we'd come up with a cumulative decision if we want to hire this person or not. Also, I think one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest mistakes new hiring managers make was they sort of wing an interview versus come in prepared, seeking to uncover specific objectives. So I think dialing your process and training hiring managers to prepare themselves to interview, I think can definitely streamline because a lot of times when we're going after very high level candidates, they might not have time to do seven interviews, you know, and they have multiple yeah. offers coming at them. So you need to be able to dial in that process, figure out who, who this human being is and be able to make a decision quickly. So when it comes to the hiring managers, like the people that you actually bring into the room, how much prep are you really doing with them per interview versus sort of a standardized, this is probably the stuff that you need to know. These are the kind of questions I want you to have and then let them freestyle. Like, or is it somewhere in the middle? So it generally happens when I first meet that hiring manager, I'll have initial discovery conversation to kind of a level set. These are my expectations. What are your expectations? How do we best sort of work together? So we kind of figure out what that template is in the beginning and then I act as a consultant throughout the process, but really it is the hiring manager that kind of owns that. Um, and we had to kind of design specific interview tracks for every one of our disciplines. There were things that were similar and there were things that were different. Yeah, I think that's, that's a thing that I have noticed specifically with larger companies where I think they struggle deeply. 
mm-hmm. because there's sort of this rubric that gets created, which by the way, huge fan of lists and rubrics. I'm a product guy. Like those are our favorite things. Yeah. But um, one size does not fit all, right? And so understanding how wildly different the interview process may need to be for an engineer versus someone in biz dev versus someone in finance. So setting those practices up feels, I don't know, to me, it feels like something that's not as thoughtful as it should be. Like, I feel like a lot of time, actually, I'd be interested, let me ask you this question. Do you feel like there's a lot of time, I feel like people throw manpower at recruiting, which is like, let's just get a lot of people and call a lot of people. And therefore we'll probably get the right people eventually, as Mm -hmm. opposed to like treating it like everything else, which is like a really thorough process that needs to be fully ingrained, not like you said in culture, but also like the same way that you have like JIRA for product processes. Like there's steps that should be followed and they should be thoughtful. Like, do you feel like a lot of companies are doing that or not as many as they should be? Or am I way off base that it's actually just fine to throw manpower at it? I, I think it's a, th- a mix of all things. Every company is a little bit different, right? But if there is one thing that I could say with every one of those scenarios that can improve the candidate process, it is actually defining who your target candidate is. Very often I will work with managers and they'll be like, uh, I'll know what I I'll know what it is whenever I see it, right? That's an ineffective approach. But when you very clearly define who it is that you're looking for, what are their skills, what are the emotional qualities, what are the soft skills, then it becomes clearer to see who it is that you're screening for. So I think getting a clear picture of the actual job description is a basic thing that every hiring organization can do to improve the recruiting process and being in lockstep with the frontline recruiters about who it is that you're looking for. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. I have a question about remote work for you. Mm-hmm. So has your process changed or has your rubric changed now that more and more companies are going fully remote? Rubric in what sense? So <laughs> the the identifiable traits that are required for someone to be successful in a role. has has Do you think that those, those have changed? Because like culture setting is different when everybody's somewhere else, right? Yeah. Like I work for a fully distributed or like, you know, a fully distributed company. We're all over the country. So like mm-hmm. we, it's interesting. I've, I've, I have different conversations with people. Some people look at me and say, oh, it's easier to create culture because it kind of doesn't matter because everybody doesn't have to get along in the same room. And then mm-hmm. that's not my, my take. My take is it's actually even harder because we're not all shared. It's not a shared experience. It's not a shared space. So we have to be that much more careful to make sure that we are bringing people in who are, like not going to get along, but that we're, we are fulfilling diversity and inclusion quotients. And we are like mindful of like the voices that aren't in a room because it's a lot easier. It feels easier to just hire pieces of paper when they're not walking around your desk. So Mm -hmm. for you, when you're setting up and you're helping people to get better practices, like has it changed the way that you think about this or are people still just people? No, no, I, th- I think it does for sure. And the one thing that I can for sure validate is that it is, yes, and I guess it seems like common sense, harder to build culture with a distributed workforce, right? And, uh, you know, I did some consulting with Model Rocket in 20, uh, 2021 and 2022. And that's one of the things that they for sure uh, felt. They wanted to, they felt there was a distance between the folks that were remote and the people that were in, in, in studio. Um, and I see that across a lot of my consulting clients quite a bit. Um, so, so what is my advice there? It is to, it is to first figure out, is the person that you're choosing to hire remote, are they being set up for success as a remote person, or do you absolutely need to hire this person locally so they can be with the culture? So again, I think it's, it comes back to knowing 
knowing the profile of who you think is going to have the highest degree of success in the environment that you have for them. Do you think it's more likely that junior people should be together and senior people can be apart? Or do you think it's entirely personal depending on the individual? I mean, I think it's dependent on the individual. For me in general, this is just my preference is just what I've seen. People, people seem to work better in proximity. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's not just the effectiveness of it. The, the thing also that I think is missing is the relationship. There's a great book called The Like Switch. And it was about a former FBI agent whose job it was, was to convince citizens of foreign countries to turn against their own governments, right? right. And there were these, these variables. One of them was proximity, length of time, intensity of experience. And there was one other thing, right? But it was that proximity thing. You build better relationships. There are more intangibles that can be an output as a result of that relationship because of the real friendship that you create, right? And there's no real way to solve that outside of proximity. And I've just seen that time and time again. So do you feel, so this, oh, now I'm very interested in this. So mm-hmm. Zoom culture, right? Like we're, we're doing this not with each other, right? Like we're in different parts of the country right now. Now yep. we have a relationship to base this on. We've been in rooms together, which I do think changes things. Like mm-hmm. knowing a person and then doing this feels a lot more familiar than not knowing a person and doing a video call. 100%. Do you feel as though that having like a video first culture is a good step. I mean, clearly it's a good step. Like it's better than not, obviously, but like how close can you get to sort of like actually working together on in this modality? Like, can you get pretty close or is it not that close in your opinion? I think you can get pretty close. And especially if you create maybe, I don't know, a quarterly or annual summit, right? Right. When you bring people together. So so the most real experience I have with this recently is I'm doing some uh, recruiting consulting for a very large hospital, right? So my team is distributed and we have been meeting for about a year now just through Zoom and we have a good sense of actually knowing each other. But we met recently in person at a summit at an event. And I can say our relationship has gotten so much better just because of that. So yes, of course, communication can take place but there really is an intangible something that happens whenever you meet people in person. Yeah, we're, we we just had a, we call it an onsite because obviously mm-hmm. we're not offsite, right? So so we had an onsite in Atlanta recently. And it's, it is interesting as much as the distributor workforce, it, there's a lot that it affords people, right? It affords people a lot of really interesting things that I do think ultimately are sometimes more healthy than than sort of having office culture. But if we don't do those things, we can phys- I can physically feel the distance between people grow the less they're in person. And yeah. so it is, it is a, I think it's a challenging thing as, as, you know, founders or executives to figure out what the right mode of that is, because I do feel from my standpoint, anyway, the freedom and autonomy that you can give people when they're not bound by structure, but bound by output is mm-hmm. a really interesting problem to solve, right? And it's a really interesting thing to allow for. Um, but that also, I imagine, is probably can be hard on recruiters then, right? Because you're, you could be bringing in wildly different personality types if you're doing sort of outdoor cats and indoor cats. Like mm-hmm. that, can that be a challenge from your point of view as far as like, you know, if some, po- if some folks are out in the wild and some folks come to the office, like how do you solve for that? Um, I... I- I think it's. I think it can be, and uh, I, I guess I'm not too sh- clear on the question that you're asking. 
Well, so, okay. So for, for example, you've got, uh, I, have a, I have a friend who owns a company and they're distributed, but they do have an office in, a, in one location. Mm-hmm. And so there are some folks that come into the location and then there's other folks that are completely distributed. So okay. for his hiring practices, he now needs to hire people that locally are better suited to be in office. Okay. And then also maintain a culture that exists for the distributed workforce. Mm-hmm. So in your hiring practices, like, do you set different parameters up? Like, are you trying to hire different? I mean, is, is how different are the people? Or do you hire for the one that you're like most worried about, like, you know, his office, and then you just treat the distributed people as you need to and bring them in when you have to? I think from a, from a hiring and selection pro- process, it really is, um, I would hire differently based on kind of those, those geographical uh, expectations, right? And I think it really starts with just setting clear expectations that there are there is a local workforce and also a distributed one. And I think as long as that's set up front to the candidate, and then that is actually what happens after they start, I think you're, you're still in good shape. Now, now, can a workforce be effective 100% remote? I think, yes, yes, it, it is. And I think some cultures do it better than others. Um, but, uh, but I think from a selection process, as long as you set those expectations up front about the work arrangement, um, I think you should be okay. And, and, and I would screen for persons who at least have some type of experience that I could vet of, of being productive in a remote environment. And then also objectifying those, those measurables, being very clear about what is it that they need to produce to achieve that success, because that is something that is set expectations up front and then managed uh, accordingly once they start. Got it. Yeah, it makes it makes sense. I, I've really enjoyed watching it over the past couple of years as it sort of like evolves, right? Because I think we went from a, you know, I was living in New York City, which was basically like everybody in the office all the time because you know we're paying so much for rent. <laughs> Somebody better be in here to play ping pong. Uh, versus like you know now for I mean I'm almost eight years in of being entirely remote, yeah. and I've noticed my work habits have changed dramatically. And the idea now of going back into an office, while there are definitely days where I would love it, I I don't know what I would do. Like, I genuinely don't know what I would do. Like you as an employee of your own organization, like you're a distributor, like if all of a sudden you had to be in an office for a while, like would it, what, what effect would it have on you, if any? What effect would it have on me? I mean, I actually enjoyed like being in the office. So whenever I can be in 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 office with one of my clients, I generally opt to do that. Um, what would be the biggest habits that I would change? I think I think it would just be planning. I think you can you can definitely seem to have more meetings in a purely distributed workforce. Um, but yeah, I think that would have to be something that I would solve for in terms of how I schedule and time my day. Yeah. The, the meeting culture thing is very interesting because I'm anti most meetings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of capping meetings in general. Like hour long is too long. 45 is fine. 30 can be too long. 15 minute pop-ins are great. And that's definitely something that's challenging to solve for remotely because mm-hmm. the ability to slide by somebody's desk, like there is just genuinely inherent value in mm-hmm. popping in and going, hey, and especially like at Bottle Rocket, I always loved it. Like everything was on the walls. So you could mm-hmm. walk in and see what was happening in real time and you could get a sense for, ooh, they're busy. <laughs> or like, oh man, like everybody's kind of chill right now. Let me actually jump in and ask a question. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a thing that I don't, they haven't figured that out virtually yet. 
Like they just haven't figured that out, at least in my opinion. Yeah. So who, who do you think, or what are some of the best practices of companies that you see doing the virtual thing? Like, how do you think you, like, other than obviously identifying the right kinds of individuals that can, that can be trusted, that want mm-hmm. to work that way also, right? But like, what are the other best practices that you see that are really meaningful? So one of my clients is a company called Headstorm. They're a technology company, technology consulting company here based in the Dallas area. So they have uh, the bulk, I'd say about 85% of their workforce is here in the Dallas area. They also have a Pittsburgh office and then have a distributed force. One of the things that they do is a weekly meeting where everyone who is local in the office, they come there. Then also they have, they, uh, they live stream everyone else from the distributed force. And that seems to help some type of weekly touch point where everyone is not just feeling included, but actually included. I think that seems to help having some type of company touch point uh, with a regular cadence, whatever makes sense for that company. Makes sense. Yeah, we try to do, we, we do at least one. We try, we also have tried to do like the remote happy hours thing, which is like sometimes works really well, sometimes doesn't. It kind of depends. I think there's a tipping point with the number of people that you can have do that. Yeah, right. But when we have the right number of people, it's great. All right, I want to take a, a left turn for a second. So you went from being sort of our, you know, at Bottle Rocket, being the corporate recruiter and head of recruitment, and, and I would also say a culture maker there, to now being a CEO. Like mm-hmm. you are, you are now occupying that space too. What was the hardest transition for you in, in, in going from having a very dedicated role and a team of people around you to then being the guy or, or gal or person that was absolutely driving every single decision and making those decisions? Like what was the biggest, the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge for me uh, was because I was 100% a W2 employee all throughout Bottle Rocket. So from 2006 through 2019, and then launching a business on your own as a startup, there's so many unknowns. So my biggest thing is where should I be deploying my focus to have the maximum amount of output? So for me, that was kind of the biggest thing. Uh, And also my business model was still kind of being fleshed out. I got lucky that I was able to land like one big contract, which essentially replaced my income. That's why I felt comfortable uh, leaving Bottle Rocket and pursuing the business. So I think that was the biggest thing for me is now that I'm on my own, where should I deploy my focus? So now that you are a CEO, looking back on some of the things that you may maybe thought in the past, has, has your opinion changed on anything now that you also are running the ship? It changed my opinion about what? Recruiting or just sort of like how you thought companies should be run. I mean, you again, you were in a really unique position. And this, I'm not talking about Calvin in particular. I'm just talking in general. Like we all sort of assign our beliefs to what we see happening and what we think we would do and how we would do things. But then once you're actually in the position to do it, very often you get a new lens where you go, oh, now I understand different parts of things that I wasn't thinking about before. Like, have you had any of those aha moments where you're like, oh, I thought it was going to be like this, but actually, it's this and I was wrong or I was just missing a part of the story. Yeah. So the biggest aha I've seen, cause, cause I, I consult with organizations and I speak at conferences about recruiting principles and best practices. Right. And the biggest aha that I have is that a lot of what I would consider to be recruiting fundamentals are not implemented in many other industries. So I, I do a lot of work like in media industries, newspaper companies, broadcast companies. Right. And um, there's just no recruiting a lot of recruiting practices just not there. And a lot of them don't even have dedicated recruiters. They have a lot of discipline heads that just do their own thing. So they're all fractionalized 
and all in the same company, right? So for me, that was one of the biggest ahas. I've always come from very kind of strict recruiting practices, organizations, implementing best practices, but that was the biggest thing. So, so whenever I share these recruiting fundamentals to these organizations, they're like, these are revolutionary. Can you imagine if we just did this? Um, and that's part of the thing that it is that I do. So, um, but yeah, that's been actually very rewarding to me is to teach the fundamentals of recruiting to these organizations. Why do you think that's missing? Why do I think that's missing? I think, um, here it is. So I don't know if all companies believe that the path to success is truly hiring world-class talent, you know? And, you know, the, the thing that, you know, they taught me in marketing 101 in college was, you know, your people are your best asset. But now I've been in recruiting for 16 years and I know that to be true. You need high caliber talent at every level of your organization. And, and when you have that, like the problems just go away and people just sort of figure things out, you know, and in, in even in good to great, of course, they say that, um, you know, that's the number one thing. Focus who should be on the bus and then from the who, they'll determine the what. So I really believe that's the first thing. That's the key to success. That's the universal key to success for every successful company. And that's hiring world-class talent, the best out there. And I just don't think, I think a lot of times companies sort of see hiring as a necessary evil, like something that they just have to do whenever they have an open spot versus treating it what it should be, which is a, a, a competitive advantage for, for any organization. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's funny. It's again, because it's not my purview, I kind of think through like, oh yeah, I guess looking back on companies I've worked with and for and around. And yeah, very often it's not, right? Like you sort of have people who are either wearing multiple hats. A lot of times I think it winds up being like, kind of like shoveled around into the HR realm, which is like people management is very different than finding. Like those are two very different disciplines. Like there's obviously a through line because of the, the way you onboard people, but it's not the same skill set. Like it's a different skill set to, to run people when they're there and then find the right people to put them in the boat. And fundamentally that will make the HR job easier if you do it right. Right. You're getting the right people. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. All right. So I have a, this is a wildly, this is just a purely curiosity question. And if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to, but you've seen so many people, like you've met so many different people and you've become a wildly good judge of character. And I know that to be true because I mean, even through the, the journey for me of this podcast, the volume of people that I wanted to call and ask if they would do it that were from Bottle Rocket is kind of hilarious. Like literally just going through the, okay, who are the people I've learned the most from? Who are the people I'm most grateful for? Who do I think has a really unique point of view? Something I don't understand that I don't know that could, that could talk to me about it. And there was like five people, no joke, immediately where I was like, oh, I want to talk to Jason and JB and, 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 and Griff and I want to talk to Calvin and Julia. Like... So now with like this proven track record of being a pretty good judge of character, how does that bleed into your personal life? Like, are you just out in public and you're like getting fast reads on people really quick? Or are you able to like sort of turn that off and just like not be that inquisitive and like see through the things when you're just out being just Julian on the streets? <laughs> you know, I suppose there is a kind of a natural intuition whenever you are in recruiting and especially being it in 16 years, you sort of become like a professional judge of character, right? So that being said, I certainly have been fooled about who I thought certain persons have been, but, but how does it apply to my life? It is, 
so okay, okay, so here's the thing, right? So it's one thing to hire for a company, and then it's another thing to hire for yourself. Yeah. Right? So that so recruiting takes on a completely different light as I continue to grow my business. You know, I I also have a video production company, so I have to screen for videographers, PAs, audio people, that kind of thing, right? And um, I look for their values, and I spend a lot of time with them before I decide to work with them. So, so it, it really has given me a new kind of approach to recruiting because there is a difference. As much of a recruiting expert as I am, I've always recruited for other companies, not my own. So that is a big, that is a big thing that I'm, I'm learning now. So Yeah, that's, that's one. Is there any values that you hold highest, right? So obviously it, it matters when you're hiring people kind of who they are. And that's a big part of your job, right? And the reason that you're good at it and the reason you can train people to, to figure out how to do it is not just because you have processes, but also to like tell people what to look for. So when you think about those core values and tenets of sort of the human existence, like what are the ones that you hold in the highest regard when hiring for yourself? Mm-hmm. So for me, I look for evidence of like a true self starter. And I don't want that to sound like a platitude. I look for someone who plays at what I want them to do. Right. And I I like to see it sometimes kind of bleed into their passions and also their interests. Um, So, so like, for example, my, my, my director of photography, Trey, um, he has actually been running his own business for quite some time. And he, he plays at videography, always knows the latest and greatest of these things. Because for me, with my production company, I have kind of the idea. I, I'm kind of the business development guy. But when I speak to him, he's able to take my idea and transform it and execute it into these beautiful videos. So for me, that's one of the things I look at. Like, does this person actually eat, breathe, sleep their craft? Yeah, I love I love your use of the word play, too. Because I feel like that's a thing that I've seen work really well. When you can have people that are in that mindset, like that mind state of playing, like specifically if you're in the creative realm, like it's so much fun to just like be in a room with a bunch of goofballs and yourself being like, let's make a thing. Like, I feel like play, I love your use of the word play there. And it's one that I'm going to adopt. I need to use that more. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with that said, um, I am so profoundly grateful for you and our time, but I, I can't let you go without asking my annoying nine questions that are my, my sort of <laughs> my nod to Bernard Pivot and my nod to inside the actor studio. Uh, so first, a quote or a concept that you love? A quote or concept I love. It is, uh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That is Proverbs 23.7. And I truly believe in the power of man's ability to change their own destiny by being intentional about the thoughts they keep in their mind and nourish. Because whatever you think about most of the time, you, you become. It, it influences your actions and therefore the results you produce in life. So that is one that has stuck with me ever since my youth. Oh, I love that. All right, what about a quote, a quote or a concept that you dislike? So I'm not sure if I, if I have a quote or a concept that I dislike, but I, I, I dislike anything that limits free speech. You know, I believe, especially nowadays, the importance of debate that all views should be heard and all views should be given the opportunity to debate because I believe when all ideas are out there competing, the best one will win, but you have to have a free space for all ideas to be shared. So for anything that limits free speech is something that I, I dislike. Yeah. Cosign. 
100% all the time. <laughs> uh, what's a job other than your own you would love to have? You know, I, I thought about this question and the truth is it's now actually becoming. So if, if you look at kind of my story, I've always had this connection to video into media. Then of course I got into podcasting, right? So my dream job was always like a producer or a director of some sorts. But now look what has grown out of my recruiting consulting practice. Part of what I teach is the employer branding, but inevitably companies want a done for you solution. So I now have a video production company. And what's really cool are kind of these ideas that are coming out. I'm doing for my clients. Like for one, for me, honestly, it's, it's coming out next year. It is a software engineering competition filmed like a reality show. So think about Iron Chef, but for coders. And oh, now sick. The producer, right. And I'm the executive producer and director of the uh, of the project, which just got greenlit and funded. So stay tuned for that. So I'm actually now living that thing I always felt like I was. Uh, first of all, congratulations. Second of all, that's like a super fun idea. I love that idea. Yeah. Cool. Um, so uh, yeah, okay, I'm in. I'm all in on that. <laughs> I'll be watching that. Mm. Uh, what's a job other than your own you would not want to have? Um, so I didn't know if there's a specific job, but there's certain themes of when I looked back into my career when I was unhappy. So anything where I feel like a number that doesn't allow me to exercise my creativity, anything that puts me in a box, yeah, that's just not my thing. But that's why I like Bottle Rocket so much because I was able to own the entire process. Yeah, it's fun. Mm -hmm. uh, what turns you on spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? So it turns me on spiritually is I, I have a Christian worldview. And uh, I was born Catholic and very much kind of uh, lost all semblances of faith all throughout college. But of course, whenever you hit rock bottom, you have a way of reaching up, learned about the discipline of apologetics, had no idea that there were scientific, historical, philosophical reasons to believe in the existence of God and specifically the truth of Christianity. And after looking through those reasons, I found it to be compelling. So that turns me on spiritually. Oh, that's great. All right. What about what turns you off spiritually, creatively or emotionally? I think any type of arrogance or dismissive energy is something that turns off my creativity. Yeah, that tracks. That's fair. Uh, what's a product that you absolutely love? <laughs> it's going to sound super cliche, man, but my iPhone, I love my iPhone 14. There's just such great utility. And before Bottle Rocket, I was exclusively a PC and Android guy. But after no Bottle way. Rocket, yeah, everything I own is Apple. I've got the studio display. I got a MacBook Pro. I got a MacBook Air. I had an iMac. My phone, everything is Apple. So. <laughs> yeah, I feel like most of the people I talk to from Bottle Rocket are going to fall somewhere in the Apple realm on that question, but that's all right. Um, what's a product that you really wish was better or that you have really strong feelings about? So I'm not sure if there's a specific product, but I can tell you certain experiences in certain sectors. I wish there were some better solutions to some government agencies. Like I can never say I've had a level 10 experience at the DPS, right? And also in some healthcare I think there's definitely some opportunity for development and growth for solutions in those two sectors. So. All right. And then lastly, if you could solve any one problem through technology, what would it be? I know exactly what it is. If there's a piece of technology to help every human being on earth discover what they were truly meant to do, let's, let's make that. Oh, I love that. I love mm -hmm. that. Uh, Julian, I am so grateful that you and I crossed paths all those years ago. You are a big reason that I am where I am today, because if, if not for you, I would not have landed there. And if not there, I would not have landed here. So thank you so much for being a part of my journey. And I hope that everybody got as much out of this as, as I did. I hope you had a good time. I had a wonderful time. And thank you for the invitation. It's great to be with you and your, you and your audience.